0: Hi, I'm Stuart Legier, Associate Artistic Director of ZUPA. Welcome to Carry the Spark, Reflections on the Movement, a limited podcast series highlighting fascinating conversations with leading climate activists on the state of the climate crisis, the need for cautious optimism, and reflections on 50 years of the Ecology Action Center. For more information, visit zupa.works or ecologyaction.ca. Here we go.
1: To get things started, so I was just wondering when you were involved with EAC and then what type of work that you were doing when you were involved with them.
0: I started in the fall of 2005 as the energy coordinator and uh, I think I was there until 2008 um, and at the time, the, the Energy Committee was really, in a lot of the ways, just starting up or being re re-initialized. Um, You know, my first task was actually to, to secure some funding from foundations. You know, the first meeting I remember of the Energy Issues Committee was, you know, three people. You know, we had a full room, almost standing room only meetings uh, by the end of that time. So it was an exciting time to, uh, yeah, to to be involved. It was really uh, building up the energy and climate change capabilities of the EAC at the time.
1: How did the idea of Efficiency Nova Scotia kind of first arise?
0: It started when, so Nova Scotia Power, which is the centralized electricity utility, around 2005 started to develop what's called a demand side management plan. So the idea of instead of just building power plants to meet energy needs, why don't we actually reduce demand so we don't have to build those power plants in the first place? And this is something that the utility had not been doing. And they came out with a plan uh, at the time that was to spend about $5 million on energy efficiency. However, there were very few performance metrics it wasn't quite clear why 5 million was, you know, the amount to be spent and so a lot of stakeholders including us, you know, had questions about this and that plan was eventually rejected. So I advocated at the time that there needed to be something called an efficiency potential study, which is really an estimate of what is the entire potential for energy savings in the province so that, you know, we didn't just have an arbitrary budget and savings metrics, but we actually had one that was based more on evidence. The utility board, which regulates Nova Scotia power, came back and said, yes, you should hire a consultant and you should do an efficiency potential study. So essentially, the utility was told to go back to the drawing board. This was, I think, an opportunity for us and, and really internally and, and as energy coordinator, we decided this is a something we should really engage in and in a strategic opportunity. So they did come up with a potential study. However, you know, when you had that magic number of how much should be spent, they came up with what was 2% of utility revenues. So in terms of how much money that was, that's about 20 million annually. So they've moved from 5 million to 20 million annually now. Um, However, when we, you know, dug into the details of, okay, well, why is that the magic number? It was actually because they benchmarked against other jurisdictions And that was the average. So essentially, the policy was, we just want to be average. We just want to be, you know, kind of mediocre. And a lot of other jurisdictions, that average is informed by a lot of other jurisdictions where there were budget caps on the amount that was being spent on energy efficiency. So why would we, as Nova Scotia, internalize those budget caps, those bad policy decisions of other jurisdictions, instead of really thinking about how much can we save and how much is actually... You know, cost-effective for the province. So that was, again, our argument there. This then got thrown into this thing called an integrated resource plan. So an integrated resource plan is a you know very kind of nerdy thing if you're into energy models, but it's a long-term energy model of the entire um, utility system that tries to find the right resource mix that's lowest cost, but can also meet environmental objectives. So uh, it's often a real benefit to energy efficiency because instead of just saying, OK, let's build power plants and build transmission lines and burn fuel to meet the projected energy demand. Why don't we actually do energy efficiency if it's lower cost than building those power plants, burning that fuel? Um, so the process of the IRP was not a hearing, but a series of, of technical conferences. And this is something I really enjoyed um, in front of the utility board, we're often competing with lawyers so um, who kind of know how to argue, but I've, I have a background in economics, so I could get my head around that modeling process and, you know, I think I had a leg up on some, some of the lawyers. So we actually snuck a lot of stuff into that utility or argued a lot of things, a scenario to reduce emissions, you know, aggressively by, by 2030. 70 percent, I think, emission reduction by 2030, which at the time was considered like totally crazy. Like You know, that was not just in the realm of possibilities, but we had that put in as a scenario. But the other probably most important thing is we said, let's have the most aggressive Energy efficiency scenario that is benchmarking ourselves not on the average but on the leaders. And at the time, the leaders were, you know, states like Vermont, California. They were spending five percent of utility revenues. So now, in Nova Scotia terms, that's about fifty million dollars a year on on energy efficiency. So we we argue the need to consider that scenario as well as to have different types of way of measuring cost effectiveness that didn't bias against energy efficiency. So the IRP results, integrated resource plan results came out and that level of spending was shown to be really robustly cost effective to the extent that if Nova Scotia didn't invest in that, it would have to spend an additional billion dollars. And they would have to build a new coal-fired power plant. So efficiency would prevent us from building a coal-fired power plant. And you might think this was kind of this amazing victory. And it was. Not quite, because actually the next day there was a quite scathing letter from really the most high-powered stakeholders in the process. So the consumer advocate, big industrials, municipalities, who all really thought this level of spending was quite unrealistic. Would be potentially a huge waste of money, where we'll have to spend for the efficiency programs, but then they're not going to work, so we'll have to spend money on the power plant anyway. You know, now I think as the Ecology Action Center, we got their attention. I asked all these stakeholders to meet me in the boardroom of the Ecology Action Center to talk through some of this. And uh, you know, what I put to the group of stakeholders is that we might not necessarily agree on how much is going to be spent at the end of the day but we can all agree that these programs should be effective and should be accountable. And what I meant by accountable was, you know, we want the programs to be effective. So is there going to be proper, um, program design? Is there going to be proper oversight and evaluation of these energy savings, right? If you're trying to save energy at this level, you really need almost the same type of oversight and sophistication that goes into building a power plant or siting a transmission line, right? And then it introduced this idea of a separate entity other than the utility actually administering the program, right? And the the feeling there was that there would be strong mission alignment, a dedicated mission for energy efficiency, um, that the utility might not have because they make money under the current regulatory system by selling energy and not necessarily by by saving energy. Um, So now we actually had another sign-on letter, which was signed by, you know, now the low-income groups and the Ecology Action Center and and a lot of these other, you know, big pulp and paper plants, large industrials, municipalities, consumer advocate, all coming together on this agenda of accountability, which wanted to open up the discussion of some sort of a third-party administrator. The utility board very quickly came back and said, We can't consider that that's out of our jurisdiction. The government kind of, there was crickets at the government. The government kind of just was not saying anything at this point. So I decided to create a forum. So basically, we booked a room, we had lunch catered, and we said, you know, let's have a day-long discussion on the exciting topic of the administration and accountability of energy efficiency programs in the province. And, you know, we brought in a number of experts from the United States who have been doing this quite for quite a long time. And the main expert being who is now our consultant, someone that we contracted as our consultant, which is Blair Hamilton, who was with the Vermont Energy Investment Corporation, which operates Efficiency Vermont, which is a efficiency utility in that state. The day before that meeting was going to take place and the government sent out a press release saying that they were going to trigger a uh, consultation process on the administration and accountability of energy efficiency programs. So by simply holding that meeting, you know we really pushed the government into considering different models. And and luckily that meeting was really just the first process of a, of a longer consultation process that that would actually feed directly into government. So that was excellent. We were shifting the debate right? The debate was no longer, you know, was no longer how much should we be spending on this? The debate was how do we make these programs effective? And a lot of the stakeholders were redirecting their strategies and thinking from simply opposing the program towards trying to see the benefits for themselves, demanding accountability and in, in the way energy efficiency um, would be operated. Nova Scotia Power then actually in the middle of this kind of process came back with a new plan which had all the spending, high spending levels, but none of the accountability, none of the um, you know performance accountability that was being asked for. And this opened the stage to more conflict and and excitement. There was a um, uh, another meeting, and I and uh, a lot of our stakeholders got together um, before that meeting, and we basically said that we were not interested in having a discussion on this plan. In the middle of that meeting, there was a walkout of all the stakeholders basically refusing to to participate um, unless the agenda included this discussion about accountability. Well, we knew this was going to happen. So we had a PowerPoint already, myself and and Blair Hamilton, presenting the option that Nova Scotia Power should administer on an interim basis. So we should get some, some programs going, but that it should be doing so in a way that easily enabled transfer to a third-party administrator if that was indeed, you know, the final recommendation. Um, that also was in the media the next day. You know, it, it was pretty uh, critical, I guess, of, of Nova Scotia Power administering the program and not having this these accountability provisions. So the next day, it was only a couple days later, uh, Nova Scotia Power basically communicated to everyone that they did not need to administer the program, and that they were open to other types of administration. And that really smoothed the way for discussing alternative administrative models, which led to, um, you know, David Wheeler was the person who led the government consultation, who was a dean at Dalhousie University at the time. And the the final recommendation from the report written by him was to have, you know, a more performance-based third-party model, which is really what you know, what we were talking about the whole time and that we had developed a stakeholder consensus around. That's the story. I mean, it then took some time, you know, some time for the government to introduce legislation. I was no longer there. So um, Cheryl Ratchford at the time was the energy coordinator who, you know, made sure that uh, that was on the government's radar. But the government at the time eventually did introduce legislation and Efficiency Nova Scotia, I think, took over administration of programs in 2011, um, but some programs were initiated in even the end of 2008. That's the story.
1: <laughs> what do you think some of the biggest impacts were from creating Efficiency Nova Scotia?
0: Well, we avoided a new coal-fired power plant, at least the planning of one. Nova Scotia has been Leading the country as the top province or one of the top provinces for electricity savings and and other types of savings for many years now. So I think that um, a lot of other jurisdictions have actually seen Efficiency Nova Scotia as a best practice and have sought to emulate the model, although of of some sort of an independent third party model. So there's now Efficiency Manitoba and there's Transitions Energy Quebec. I know they've all looked to Nova Scotia as a model. PEI has has adopted more of an efficiency utility model. I actually don't think that any one of those jurisdictions has emulated the model to its full benefit, if you will. You know, and, but I think what's probably most important is that Efficiency Nova Scotia is a institution and a grouping of people with particular expertise that is. There to be leveraged for the next stage of greenhouse gas reductions and and transition, I, you know I do think that we're moving into a area of policy and and just political willingness to 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 become much more aggressive in greenhouse gas emission reductions and which means much deeper energy savings and uh, I think that efficiency Nova scotia is extremely well placed to um to help lead that because of the expertise involved because it can work across fuels because it's got a mission that's entirely aligned with energy efficiency and doesn't have competing missions so i you know i think it's just important that it's a institution that that has been doing you know more incremental things all the all the arguments that i was making in the day was actually saying you don't even need to think about greenhouse gas emission reductions it's just you know you can do this cuz it's cost effective and i think that was quite clever and strategic at the time But it does set us up for, I think, using the organization and having the organization, um, you know, take a much more um, radical approach to greenhouse gas reductions. Why do you think that you were so successful, or
1: what do you think that there was kind of like a key to your success or something that enabled you you guys to kind of turn it into reality and then actually?
0: We had an unlikely coalition of stakeholders. So people were very surprised when we had the low-income organizations and the environmental organizations and the big pulp and paper companies in the province, you know, all on the same letters. We also reframed the debate. So moving away from the discussion of just how much are we going to spend towards a much more productive discussion where, you know, everyone could get together, I think was was quite important. You know, we also, I, I think, decided to work in a policy arena where few others were working or daring to go. So so we so we filled a gap. How did volunteers and community engagement play a role? And so, you know, the utility board regulation is quite a elite process. The energy committee played a role throughout. So for instance, I had volunteers attending meetings when I was on vacation. And perhaps most important were committee members were involved in key decisions around taking risks and making more value-based judgments, hiring a consultant. So we to, to present arguments and evidence before the utility boards, it's done by consultants and consultants can cost a lot of money. Um, So we decided to take the risk to use some of the money on hand to hire a consultant um, without assurance that we could recoup the costs of this. You can't actually apply for costs at the end of the hearing because we were a nonprofit intervener. Um, But that was a decision to hire Blair Hamilton from Vermont, who was incredibly invaluable in providing mentorship to me and providing expertise, working hand in hand with with our consultant was quite important. And the energy committee made that decision to basically, you know, use the money in the bank or, you know, some of the money that we had in the bank to have that expertise on hand. The other was, you know, for instance, we had a great discussion around our advocacy position on low income energy efficiency. And, um, you know, I, I think if I remember correctly, I presented some of the potential tensions there so so a tension could be you know obviously you know, there's real social benefits to robust low income energy efficiency, demanding that a certain minimum percentage of the budget um, be earmarked for low income. Um, often that's needed because not necessarily the most you know, cost effective, biggest bang for your buck program. But there's clear social benefits. There was, it was clear that we could build a political coalition with low income organizations if, if we supported them in this way. Um, but it might not be, you know, the biggest greenhouse gas reduction per dollar spent of, of those funds. So we had a discussion with the Energy Issues Committee on if we were going to robustly support low income, and the answer was yes. And, you know, it allowed a lot of those value-based decisions about, you know, the importance of equity um, to come into equity and justice, to come into our policy positions, and not just having uh, what might be a uh, conceived as a very narrow, you know, environmental position, but but to consider some of the other benefits to energy efficiency.
1: At the time, were there a lot of other groups or organizations that were looking into equity and justice within like energy and energy efficiency within Nova Scotia at the time?
0: Um, we were working in coalition. At, when I was at the Ecology Action Center, we founded an organization in coalition with uh, Dalhousie Legal Aid and a bunch of other anti-poverty organizations called the Affordable Energy Coalition. And that still exists, even though it doesn't have a website. But that the mandate of, of that coalition was to help end energy poverty in the province. And uh, Dalhousie Legal Aid at the time was leading advocacy in front of the utility board And then subsequently courts to have like a bill and assistance program. So essentially, if, if a low income energy consumer had bills that were considered unsustainable, there'd be an automatic rebate, there'd be emergency assistance. So they were leading that. As the Ecology Action Center, we really took on the energy efficiency policy aspects of it and the advocacy for low low income energy efficiency programs although we did not get a minimum budget you know guaranteed there was uh, quite a argument in the province at the time to have a low income efficiency program that was no cost to participants essentially recognizing that primary barrier is a lack of income so you can't expect low income people to pay up front for energy efficiency upgrades like the you know the standard the standard program so yeah that was a whole line of advocacy um at the time and and the EAC was was leading the energy efficiency aspects of of that advocacy and then, you know, I was at the time an expert witness um, in some of the proceedings on the, the bill assistance work as well.
1: As you know, EAC is sort of, in the grand scheme of things, a smaller organization that's kind of working against lots of bigger, bigger issues and bigger institutions, working against certain systems to change them for the better. Drawing on your experience with EAC and other experiences you've had, how do you think that we should move forward in fighting against some of these systems that we're trying to change?
0: It's about thinking about what resources Nova Scotia has to achieve the dramatic greenhouse gas reductions we need and then to organize people around demanding that that change. Um, you know, when I think about Efficiency Nova Scotia. It's 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 an organization that can now be used for the next stage of climate policy. Um, and I think, it, you know, perhaps a new demand is that while arguments about cost effectiveness from a rather narrow, you know, economistic perspective was a good strategy, I think, when I was doing it over, you know, over a decade ago now, it's time to put zero carbon objectives first. Um, so that's one of the resources that Nova Scotia has. I mean, Efficiency Nova Scotia is a key resource, but we're not going to have that resource meet its full potential unless people demand change. And that's organizing and developing lists and figuring out who your supporters are and then getting more supporters. <laughs> I think I think EAC is well placed to do that. And, and that's that's uh, that's how you can achieve the kinds of changes we need.
1: What do you think that the world would look like if EAC had never existed? Um,
0: (laughs) Well, I, I think being involved in environmental issues in the province would probably be less fun and less hopeful. You know, I think EAC is an organization that inspires people and talks about what what could be done. You know, I think the province would be pulled towards mediocrity. Without the EAC trying to define what's what's possible, and and so just to maybe go back to the story of of energy efficiency, you know the 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 the, the standard policy decisions was was to be mediocre, was to be average in how much we spent. Um, when I think about the the deep green scenario that we had in that. 2007 integrated resource plan. It was, you know, actually, I just looked it up here. It's a 75% reduction by 2030. And that was considered totally crazy, you know, utopia scenario. But now the province is seeking to eliminate all coal by that date and achieving 80% renewables by that date, with other parties even demanding more in the election. So, um, You know, I think EAC always plays a valuable role in defining what's possible. And it's been proven that what it often demands and is considered to be unrealistic actually is possible.
1: Again, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be part of this and we're happy to have your voice uh, involved.